Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juneau, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Eva Holland. Holland is the author of the book Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. The book goes on sale in Canada on April 7th and in the United States on April 14th. Nerve is a hybrid of memoir and reported science. It's focused on Holland encountering and overcoming the things she was most fearful of, and the science behind it all. The idea for the book came about after a few things happened all in a row back in 2015. First, Holland's mom died unexpectedly. That was one of her greatest fears in life. And then she was in a series of serious car crashes. Basically after the last car accident, I rolled my car into a ditch in in April 2016, and I had been thinking about the idea of a book about fear actually that day while I was driving on the highway. And uh, that night in the hospital, I was like, yeah, okay, you got you got to do the book about this now because um, obviously the universe is sending you some kind of sign. This is Holland's first book. Most of what she has done as a writer over the last decade are magazine pieces. She's a successful freelance writer working as a correspondent for Outside Magazine. She's also written for Esquire, Wired, Bloomberg, Pacific Standard, Afar, Smithsonian, and National Geographic News. But Holland said she really enjoyed writing the book. I liked that it was sort of mine and I wasn't I wasn't worried about a kill fee. I wasn't worried about an institutional voice. I wasn't I liked that sense of ownership, although that also makes it scarier, of course, because it's really just on you. And I liked digging in deeper onto a subject. I liked having what felt like a greater level of creative autonomy. This is Holland's second visit to Gangry the Podcast. She was on the show back in March of 2014. During that interview, we talked about her story, Wilderness Women. That story ran on SB Nation long form. We also talked about her piece, Chasing Alexander Supertramp. That story is about people who made a pilgrimage to the bus in remote Alaska where Christopher McCandless died. McCandless was the focus of John Krakauer's Into the Wild. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Holland's work on our website. That includes a link to many stories that she has written, as well as a link to the book Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. You can find all those links, as well as listen to Holland's first appearance on the show at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Eva, welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. Been a uh, while. It has been a while. You were on this show back in March of 2014. <laughs> so it's been six years, almost six years to the date, actually. Um, I'm guessing a lot has changed in your writing career since then. Uh, yeah, a lot has changed. Uh, gosh, March 2014. Yeah, a lot has changed since then. I'm trying to think. 
I, I think, think back then, yeah. I think when I had you on the show, um, we talked about some of your SB Nation long form stuff and uh, your Alexander Super Tramp piece. Um, and I, I specifically remember you saying, I'm a beginner. I'm a beginner. I don't, you know, um, and you're not anymore. So that's good, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I hope I've learned a lot over those six years. I feel like I have for sure. Oh, I'll ask you about that when we get to the second half of the show for sure. So to get things started, obviously I want you on the show this time to talk about your book, which is coming out on April 14th. Uh, the book is titled Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. Can can we start things off really by having you talk, talk a little bit about the book? Absolutely. So Nerve is... I guess, a hybrid of uh, memoir or personal writing and reported science. And it is about the story of my relationship to fear and my efforts to see if I can change or, or renegotiate that relationship. And along the way of trying to sort of explore my fears and confront my fears, I look into the science of, of phobias and trauma, touch on anxiety, and, and try to look at what we know about these conditions and why we have them and how they work and to what extent they can be cured or to what extent a cure is even desirable. How did the idea for this book come about? A few things happened in a row that led to me writing this book. The first was that my mom died suddenly in July of 2015. Um, she had a stroke and was, uh, was gone pretty quickly. And for sort of complicated reasons, I had always really kind of actively feared my mom's death. Obviously, nobody wants their parents to die, but uh, it was sort of front of mind for me in a way that I think it's not for a lot of people because my mom had been an orphan and uh, had talked a lot about the loss of her parents and and um, and how that affected her. And so I had from childhood this kind of dread of, of losing a parent. And so when my mom died, I realized that actually my, my worst fear had come true. And then as time passed and... And I realized I was sort of not as deeply affected as she had been, as in not, um, obviously I was grieving the loss, but I was not sort of uh, undone by it in the same ways that she had been. I realized maybe I had faced my worst fear and, and survived. And that made me want to, it made me feel really powerful and it made me want to see if I could change my relationship to my other fears as well. And then two more things happened after that. The first was that I had this pretty intense panic attack on an ice climbing trip a few months after my mom died. That's described in the prologue of the book as sort of an inciting incident where I, I basically, I refused to come down from this mountain and, and I put my life at risk and, and put other people at risk as well, which I had never, I had never, I'd been uncomfortable with heights for a long time, but I had never done anything like that before. And that made me really determined to figure out what, you know, what the hell was going on and what, why I had done that. Uh, but at that point, I just thought of it as a personal project, not a professional project. And then two months after that, I had the last in a series of serious car accidents. And I uh, I decided, basically after the last car accident, I, I rolled my car into a ditch in, in April 2016. And I had been thinking about the idea of a book about fear actually that day while I was driving on the highway. And uh, that night in the hospital, I was like, yeah, okay, you got, you got to do the book about this now because... Um, obviously the universe is sending you some kind of sign. Right, right, right. That, that, um, climbing trip is that, that's not the climbing trip that, that you wrote about in unclimbable, was it? No, different trip. No. Yeah. Uh, the unclimbable trip was the summer of 2014. Um, and then this ice climbing trip where I had this mishap was February, 2016. Um, on the unclimbable trip, I was injured and not really able to do anything. So, uh, 
for people who haven't read it, I, I wrote a story for SB Nation a few years ago called Unclimbable about about these young women that I met in this climbing area in northern Canada who were attempting this um, pretty intense climb with their friends' ashes. Right, and that piece was uh, anthologized in Best American Sports Writing, right? Uh, it was a notable selection, yeah. No, oh, I thought it was in there. It should have been, anyways. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, w- once you found out, uh, take me through the process. Um, you, you come to this idea that you want to write this book. Uh, obviously, you had to start with a proposal at, so- at some point in time. Had you written a book proposal before? I had. That was actually why I was thinking about the idea of a book about fear as I was driving along the highway that day, because my previous proposal, I had sort of decided earlier that day to to let it let it die or let it sit on the shelf. At least it, it hadn't worked out the way I hoped. I had I had put together a proposal about you know, the future of a changing Arctic, the past, present and future of the changing Arctic kind of stuff. It was a little bit wonkier. And and the word that we got back from from publishers was was a lot of, you know, Eva seems great, but I don't know about Arctic wonkery. Can she send us something with sort of broader commercial appeal? And so I was driving along the highway that day thinking, well, what do I, you know, I've, I've somewhat, somewhat esoteric areas of specialty and interest, you know, right. like I, you know, like I've reported deeply on sled dog racing. <laughs> um, so I was like, well, what is something that I, what do I always ask myself with stories? And, and I had the same question with book projects. What do I bring to the table? You know, what, why me for this? What what do I have to bring to the table for this that nobody else does or that fewer people would have? And so I was trying to think about what is an area of broad appeal and interest where I have something to say, something different to bring to the table. And and so that's when I started thinking about my experiences with fear, having this, this fear of heights and then having... Um, acquired a, a fear of, of driving after these these accidents and then my relationship to fear around my mom's death I was sort of like okay maybe I have something to say here so my first step after I you know got home got out of the hospital and got home was uh, uh, to just send a note to my agent with kind of like a two paragraph summary of my idea mm-hmm. and she said yeah go for it so that summer 2016 I started pretty actively working on the proposal I um, I worked on two sample chapters that summer, one of which was the one where I go skydiving and the other one where I um, try to learn to rock climb to as a form of exposure therapy that became a, an article in Esquire as well. So that summer I was working pretty intensively on the proposal. And then, you know, life happened, freelancing happened. 2016 and 2017 got away from me with some back and forth with my agent, trying to strengthen the proposal, finishing things off, you know, putting it down for months at a time just doing other things that were, because, you know, of course a, a book proposal is a, nobody pays you to do it. It's an, right. it's an investment in the future. So it always took the backseat to paying work. Right. And so through 2017, it mostly kind of sat. And then I got it together in time for early 2018. And it went out to publishers in kind of March, April, 2018. And I got the deal in April, 2018. And then I had it was a pretty quick, pretty quick turnaround. I had one year, a bit less than a year, maybe eleven months mm-hmm. through the first draft, and then uh, it's now been another year since I turned in my first draft. Right, right. Uh, reporting wise, what was the first thing you did once once that book deal came through? Once the book deal came through, I started reading books. <laughs> <laughs> I had because I had kind of gotten burned on this previous Arctic proposal where I had put in a ton of broad research. I had done a bunch of travel. I had put a bunch of money up front. I I was really skittish about going down that path again. And so I did 
this sounds bad, I guess, but I did kind of the bare minimum on the proposal that I thought I could get away with. You know, I, the only thing that really cost money was the skydive. It was $400. It was one day, maybe 450 I can't remember for sure. You know, I got, I got paid to do the Esquire story to do, to do some research into phobias. That was helpful. So, but I hadn't done a lot of kind of broad-based research. I had done enough to be sure that the proposal was sound, but nothing more. So the first thing I did when I got the book deal was sit down on my back deck and uh, and start reading really broadly. You know, I, I read sort of big picture books about the science of emotion more generally. I read uh, a book of brain anatomy, like literally a university textbook of like introduction to brain anatomy, because I wanted to have a grounding before I started digging into, uh, you know, neuroscientific research and that kind of thing. I read a book that was sort of just a survey of all the scientific literature on phobias sort of grouped thematically. That was really useful. Uh, yeah, I started out just kind of trying to get a, a base of knowledge because I, I, I didn't have a strong background in this stuff or, um, at all. <laughs> right, right. The, the book writing process in general, did you enjoy it? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's similar, right? But it's, it's so different um, from like when, when you're working on magazine pieces uh, to the, when you go all in on, on something much bigger. Yeah. So controversial statement. I like writing. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the process of writing right. uh, sometimes more than others. You know, I, I obviously sometimes I'm like in deadline hell, like anybody else, probably somebody could come up with some tweets from while I was working on the book that, that uh, suggest I'm not that I have, you know, revised history in my memories here. But I, I think overall, I liked having a big project to dig into. I liked that it was sort of mine and I wasn't, I wasn't worried about a kill fee. I wasn't worried about an institutional voice. I wasn't, I liked that sense of ownership, although that also makes it scarier, of course, because it's really just on you. And I liked digging in deeper onto a subject. I liked having what felt like a greater level of creative autonomy. Mm -hmm. You know, books are so flexible. I, I love magazine stories and I love magazine story structure, but it's, it's sort of like, I guess it's sort of like writing a, a, po a particular form of poetry where there's there's sort of rules about what you can do and the fun is playing within those rules and and then a book in comparison is sort of free verse you know you can you can do what you want if you want to sort of uh, break the fourth wall and turn to the reader and address them directly you can do that and if you if you want to do something really weird structurally you can um, I I liked that sense of course it was also really really hard at times I did get significantly behind schedule on the writing. And I had sort of three months of hell at the end before deadline <laughs> where I was just just cranking uh, words out. And that was hard and scary because it was sort of, you know, I got to a point where I was like, OK, you just have to get it done and hope that it's OK. Were, were you pretty certain to, uh, the structure of the book as it is now? Is that pretty similar to what what you envisioned originally? Yeah, it's quite similar to what I laid out in the proposal. There's some some changes, but they're relatively cosmetic. Nothing, no major overhaul for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Do you like, you know, there's a big difference uh, between some magazine writing, not all, but some, uh, in that it's oftentimes straight third person type stuff. Um, you're very much a big part. Uh, you have to be a big part in this. Like you said, it's a kind of a combination of memoir and reporting. Did you like writing about yourself as, as a character? I do. Yeah. And, you know, people that follow my magazine work know I, I do this a lot, whether through actual personal writing or I make a distinction between that and sort of immersion reporting where you sort of use yourself as a tool in the story, but it's not necessarily all that personal. I do like working in that medium. You know, I came out of creative writing rather than journalism. Mm -hmm. 
And so first person feels very natural to me. And I try to be, I, I worry, I'm conscious of the fact that a lot of people view it as self-indulgent and that it can be self-indulgent. And so I try to, when I put myself in a story, I try to have a reason to be in there um, and to be clear about what that reason is rather than just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I, I also try to make sure I do at least one kind of traditional third person journalistic feature per year right? Um, so that people know that I can and I'm not <laughs> a one trick pony or, or somebody who only writes about myself. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm comfortable writing about myself. This is certainly one of the most personal things I've I've ever put out in the world, maybe the the most personal. I've written some pretty personal, personal essays, but um, <laughs> definitely this would be the highest profile, uh, most personal writing I've put out in the world. So that's that's a little bit daunting, but it made sense to me to weave my story through, both in terms of the emotion the, of the personal story and to sort of use myself as a guinea pig to explain this stuff to people. In some ways, I find particularly when you're talking about people's feelings and trying to get into their heads, I find third person really daunting to do that with confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to claim to be in someone's head as opposed to just sort of saying, here I am, here's what I see, here's what I think about this person. You know, somebody like um, Patternity, you know, right. he does amazing work jumping into people's heads, like like the long fall of Flight 111 Heavy is, but I would find that terrifying. Uh, I, I think what he does is amazing, but I you have to have an awful lot of confidence in your reporting to do it. And so to me, first person feels safer, I guess, which is another reason why I try not to do it all the time because you don't want to be safe all the time. Right. Um, you write a lot uh, in this book because it's a hugely important part of this book about about your mom's death. And, and I imagine that that had to have been emotionally difficult. How was it? Uh, and, and, and how did you kind of pull yourself through that writing? Cause writing about emotional instances in our lives can, can be, can be traumatic sometimes. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I'm just realizing as we're talking that I dragged my feet on this proposal for two years and I wonder if it wasn't partly because I wasn't ready to, to write about my mom mm-hmm, right. <laughs> because by the time I sat down to do it, I felt fairly well equipped mm-hmm. to do it. I will say some of the sections. So, um, if you haven't seen the book yet, chapter one and chapter three sort of detail the events around my mom's death and then and then the aftermath for me. And I will say that that some of those sections I wrote a long time ago before I even started thinking about this book. Um, I started writing about uh, my experiences in the ICU before we turned off my mom's life support, if not immediately within a couple of months, I think of her death. I I was taking notes immediately. I knew I was going to write about it and I didn't know what else to do except to start. So some of the details that you'll find in there, like the one about how, so I was on a, uh, for listeners, I was on a backcountry canoe trip uh, in the wilderness of Northern British Columbia when my mom had a stroke. And so I had to be evacuated out to the coast to get uh, to a town in Alaska to be able to fly out to get to the hospital. And uh, I have a detail in there about, I think I say that I, I rode out to the coast on, on top of 7,500 pounds of Chinook salmon. And like, that's, I know that because I asked someone how much salmon was in the boat. And then I wrote it down in my journal. Right, you know? right. uh, so that, that instinct to report was there from the beginning. And, and some of those, I guess, most vivid sections about, you know, for instance, like turning off, turning off the, the life support machines at the hospital, I wrote a long time ago. And then I just didn't come back to them for years. I didn't feel able to look at them or edit them. And when I did come back to them, yeah, it was, it was hard, but I, I guess I didn't do it until I felt 
able to. Right. And, you know, I was also like writing the bulk of this book in, in the depths of a Yukon winter in a, in a basement <laughs> apartment in the dark. So there was, there were some, there were some dark nights of like wallowing around in the worst moments of my life uh, <laughs> for this book, which is not as bleak as I'm probably making it sound. I hope it, ha- I, I, I originally envisioned the book as sort of funny kind of Mary Roach style, like wacky science of fear. And I think there, there's still some elements of humor in it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope. I think, I think so. I think so. There's a lot of science, scientific complexity in the book. Um, and, uh, I freak out if I have to do any type of science reporting because I'm constantly worried I'm going to get something wrong. How did you make sure that you got it all right? Well, I guess we'll find out if I get <laughs> angry letters from scientists in a couple of weeks. But um, I I was really nervous about that. I had that was probably my biggest sort of area of imposter syndrome for mm-hmm. this book. You know, the psychology stuff I felt more capable of handling. The neuroscience was really intimidating. I don't have a STEM background at all, right? Um, and so I just tried to read widely and and I I talked to smart people. And sort of cross-referenced things um, and started feeling better. Some of the famous case studies that I go over when they started to crop up in like six or seven or eight of my sources, I was like, okay, I'm on pretty solid ground with this. And then the biggest thing I did is I hired a fact checker. Mm -hmm. My friend Jane fact checked only the science half of the book for me. I didn't attempt to fact check the memoir, partly to save money because I was paying by the hour. Right. and partly because it's just difficult to fact check memoir, particularly when a lot of it is just set in my own head or is scenes between me and my mom who's dead. So it would have just, been, you know, on author, on author, on author all the way down. But I had Jane check the science. And in particular, what I had her look at was my framing of the research. Not only if I had if I had misunderstood what I was reading in the journal articles, you know, like misrepresenting the results but also framing them appropriately in terms of what they mean, what they suggest. You know, like I, we, we went through my language and eliminated just about any, any instance of the word prove, you know, it was like the findings suggest that blah, you know, just trying to, because I think that's often where science writing can go wrong is, is not in like a total misunderstanding of, of the findings, but in, in framing them incorrectly in terms of what they mean for the bigger picture. So uh, that made me feel a lot better. And going through that process with Jane, even just annotating my manuscript for her the way I would a magazine story, I, you know, I found some mistakes. It helped me to think about my language, trying to justify it to someone else in that level of detail. And then we went through and she didn't find that many problems. And, and we fixed the ones that she did find. And, uh, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer, all remaining errors are on me. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, no, that, that really helped my confidence to have, you know, a professional fact checker with a strong science and psychology background, um, who had checked other science books like mine before, uh, to go through. That was, that was really helpful. There's, there's a part in the book that, that, you know, I read the book, oh my golly, like almost three months ago now, I think, I think I read it back in January. December even. Um, but there's one part of the book that really sticks out in my mind. And, and this is, um, I mean, a lot of it sticks out in my mind, but one part where you're trying to overcome a fear um, and it's the fear of heights. Uh, and it, it's the part of the book where you're in Amsterdam. And, uh, and I think you were going up in a bucket, a fire truck bucket. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a film crew there too, which I also think is, is, is crazy and, would make me even more scared, I think. But I'm, I'm curious because you that's a really good and detailed scene. And I was wondering if, if you were able to use the footage that they shot when you sat down to start writing to really develop that scene. 
No. Wow. <laughs> I didn't see that footage until November. And, and I, so, okay. I'm so glad you, you liked that because that was the very last thing aside from the epilogue. That was the very last mm-hmm. thing I wrote. So I went to Amsterdam to undergo this experimental drug treatment for phobias that involves sort of triggering your fear in an extreme way and then hitting you with this drug. And and the idea is that the drug sort of like, not to sound too sci-fi, but it sort of like edits your fear memories. And then you don't remember that you're afraid and then you're not afraid anymore. Um, in the, in the like quickest and dirtiest possible terms. <laughs> um, and so I went to Amsterdam two weeks before my book deadline. <laughs> oh my. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I had already written at that point the sections of that chapter where I describe this psychologist's research and her, her laboratory work. I had written everything in that chapter except for my own role in undergoing the treatment. And it was, it was interesting challenge because journalistically, because I did the treatment at, I think like around noon one day. And then my orders were for it to work. You have to, for the, the drug to work on your, on your memories, you have to have a night's sleep because our sleep cycles are, are super connected to our memory storage systems in ways that aren't fully understood. Um, so my orders after I got the treatment were to go back to my Airbnb, to not think about what I had just done, to not write about it, to not, um, to not let anything else scare me that day. So like, basically it was like, go home, read a book, be calm, try to sleep and come back tomorrow. So I couldn't even take any notes. Wow until for 24 hours afterwards. Um, and then it was only once I had undergone the the sort of repeat shock the next day and they'd found that I was, you know, sort of cured that, uh, that I was able to start writing things down. Um, so I wrote those scenes then, uh, as quickly as I could after that. And, and I wrote most of them, I think on the plane home, uh, from Amsterdam, uh, but that was, yeah, that was a challenge. And I did not have access to the film crews, footage uh i didn't see anything that they shot of me until it aired on 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 national television in in november wow Uh, well that's the entire scene was nerve-wracking for me because i think i told you this in an email that i have a significant fear of heights myself um to the point where i won't even climb up watchtowers in the woods like when i'm with mm -hmm. my kids and at gettysburg i couldn't even go up with my son um, when he was there with his sixth grade class, I literally had to just stay on the bottom cause it freaks me out. Uh, and so quite frankly, that section kind of freaked me out <laughs> as well. <laughs> well fair enough. There was probably a few sections where I'm going on about heights that weren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, we're, uh, we're going to take a short break. Um, uh, when we return, uh, we'll have some more from Ava Holland, uh, the author of nerve adventures in the science of fear which will be coming out on April 14th. Uh, you should uh, order it now. Uh, we'll be back in just a short minute. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition 
of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Eva Holland, who is the author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear, which will be coming out on April 14th. Uh, she's also um, a pretty amazing freelance writer, uh, I would have to say. I've, I've loved reading your work uh, ever since I was acquainted with it through SB Nation Longform when we were both writing uh, for, the, uh, for the Longform site, what seems like forever ago now. Um, mm-hmm. You were on uh, the show back in March of 2014, and I think we talked about your piece uh, on the Alaska... Um, Oh my, I can't even remember. One of the, I think it was your first SB Nation long-form piece um, about that competition in Alaska. Oh, Wilderness Women. Wilderness yeah. Women. And we talked about chasing Alexander Supertramp. Um, how, so, you know, you were, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, you were not a book author then. Uh, and I think you were still relatively um, new freelancer, especially for like national type stuff. Um how how has uh, the type of work that you're doing now changed since then? And then also, how has freelancing in general changed? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I think, I don't know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think a lot of us in that SB Nation long-form community that was formed between, between you know, our editor, Glenn Stout, and, and, and the writers, we really formed kind of a little crew there for a while. And, and I think a lot of us sort of felt like we were kind of playing in the minor leagues and, and, and doing good work, uh, maybe doing work that we felt was, you know, major league level or could be, and sort of waiting for our call up. Um, that was certainly how I felt in sort of 2014, 2015 Mm -hmm. was like, put me in coach, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, and I guess I, I guess I got my call up since then more or less. Um, you know, there's no way to say that without, sounding immodest, but, but I, I, I achieved my goal of, of starting to write for features more consistently for sort of major national magazines. And, um, and that's really amazing. Cause that was, that was the dream for a really long time. And you never know if it's actually going to happen or, or happen consistently. Um, and I, well, you know, current global pandemic circumstances aside, I, I now feel pretty good about my sort of position in, in the industry and, and my ability to keep, um, keep landing those feature assignments. What, uh, how has it, it just in general freelancing changed, uh, which I, I, you know, I, I'm not doing nearly as much writing, uh, as I was five or six years ago, but, you know, I can tell, um, from conversations with other people who are writing and, and just Twitter in general, that, that freelancing is, is definitely more challenging right now. Is that accurate? You think? Well, I think it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I, I started freelancing in 2008. So like right in the middle of the crash. And I also started out totally green. And so for me, I didn't ever experience those pre-crash rates uh, or contracts. So for me, it's been a steady climb to better and better rates uh, over the last decade or so. Um, but I know that rates are getting worse a lot of places. I know that money is tight. I know that contracts are getting worse pretty consistently. That's one thing I've seen a real change in the last few years is sort of the rights grabs from magazines for rights that used to belong 
to the writers, um, you know, film rights being the obvious example mm-hmm. uh, of something that used to be the writer's exclusive purview and, and more and more publications are, are grabbing those and, and typically splitting them with the writer and maybe the publication is actively marketing them in a way that the writer wouldn't, but it's, uh, it's still sort of money that pre Argo went to writers exclusively. Um, so there's that. Uh, I also think there's some positives uh, and again, you know, date this to like pre pandemic, but, um, there are, there's positive movement with, you know, some reader supported and nonprofit journalism. There's, um, you know, the, the virtual end of unpaid internships was a positive movement, um, towards paid fellowships instead, making those programs more accessible to people. There's, there's community and, and solidarity and resources available online for people that there didn't used to be. You know, when I was starting out, I was just making shit up as I went along. And right. There's so much out there now. So I, I think there are positives. I think it's a hard time to be a freelancer for sure. But I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Again, asterisk pre-pandemic. <laughs> right. I, you know, pandemic. Uh, and obviously I should mention that this is the first ever episode of Gangry the Podcast this is episode number 80, uh, the first ever episode that is recorded from my house. <laughs> I had to bring all my equipment home from my my campus studio. Uh, and so if you hear dogs barking in the background, that's that's why. Um, but, you know, we're in the midst of this. Um, what what impact is that having? Uh, you know, I mean, are freelancers or will you be able to go out and do something for somebody up up in up in, you know, the Yukon? What, what's going on there? Yeah. I mean, right now I, um, <laughs> I actually got tested yesterday, so I'm not allowed to go anywhere until I get my wow. test results. I'm not even outside my, I can go for a walk by myself and that's it. Right. Um, but, uh, I think it's been, I mean, I, I have not been super tuned in, but I think it's been in the short term, at least pretty catastrophic for freelancers, uh, and for everyone, but particularly for freelancers. So many of us, um, rely on travel, there's a lot of questions about about companies that owe us money, you know, shutting down or going going under or going sort of uh, dormant, sending their their admin staff home and like is anybody cutting checks for for work that was done earlier in the winter? I don't I don't know, you know, I've got maybe $10,000 in receivables that I'm waiting on. Um so it's it's a really tough time. I do think right now we're in the early the early kind of chaos of this and I do think in the next few weeks or couple of months, we'll see sort of new guidelines. And I don't know if that means everything will be desk reported for the next while, or if people will be able to do some on the ground reporting in their communities without getting on planes. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways in which that can be beneficial to freelancers uh, because editors won't be able to, you know, I, I have periodically been sort of irked by, by writers being flown into my community to report on things when I, I would have liked to have that assignment. So, I mean, now I'll get that assignment. Right. <laughs> right. So I, you know, not to be too glib, but, um, <clears throat> I think that the ground rules will become more clear hopefully in the next month. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough, you know, it's, uh, I, I know a lot of media people are really concerned. I know that Canada just yesterday, announced some measures to support the journalism industry during the pandemic. 
because advertising dollars have tanked. Mm-hmm. Um, the first measure they announced was basically like major government ad buys to put public health information in, in ads. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one way they're going to support uh, Canadian newspapers, for instance. So I don't, I don't know what I've, I've certainly heard. I have not because it's sort of terrible timing for me and, um, and decent timing for me because I had already more or less cleared the decks for my book launch. Right. So I don't, I didn't have a bunch of assignments canceled. I have one, I had one jury trial that I was going to cover that has been postponed indefinitely. So that's one magazine feature that's, you know, now in the, you know, DVD column. But, but otherwise I had, I had cleared my schedule for the next two months to be doing a book tour and media and, you know, Q and A's and, and spinoff essays and, and all of, all of the stuff that comes with book promotion. So I am not super engaged with what's happening with pitches and freelance budgets and stuff right now, but I'll, I'll have to figure that out in the next, I mean, obviously all my book tour and everything has been canceled. So I'll have to figure that out in the next while. What are you going to do to promote the book now? Um, Because I think it's a book that actually fits what we're living through, right? This, uh, you know, right now. Um, Because fear, I think, is a huge thing that's going on, uh, not just in the United States and Canada, but throughout the world. So, what are what are what are you going to hopefully do to to get get word out? Yeah, I mean, I feel a lot of a lot of gratitude that that people are coming out of the woodwork to say buy books, support bookstores, support authors. That's been very cool and heartening to see because it's sure a scary time to launch a book right now. Um, yes, I see the irony. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm just gonna, I've got, you know, podcast and radio interviews lined up. Um, I'm trying to write a few pieces about why it's helpful to understand our fear response at this time. Um, just trying to get the word out and, and hope that people are still able to get delivery or to, to order the ebook or the audiobook. And, and I, it feels a little, a little gross and a little conflicting to be promoting a book at this time. But I also, you know, one, I just sort of need to, and if I, <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, pay my rent and all that. But, um, but two, like, I do hope that it can be helpful or, or soothing or, or, or interesting for people on some level. So uh, I guess I'm just going to keep putting it out there and, and hope that people pick it up and like it. Well, I think people should pick it up uh, and, and they should order it on Amazon. Uh, you can uh, order it uh, or, or order it from whatever bookstore, order it from a small bookstore if you can. Uh, it's definitely a book that's worth reading. It's Nerve Adventures in the Science of Fear. Uh, Eva, Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, good luck. Thank you, Matt. You too. Stay safe. That was Eva Holland. Holland is the author of Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. The book goes on sale in Canada on April 7th and in the United States on April 14th. I recommend reading it. It's a great combination of memoir and strong science reporting. I also think a book on fear and the science behind it is just about the best thing you could read as we're all self-isolating during the coronavirus pandemic. As usual, there are links to a lot of Holland's work, including her book, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. 
Gangria spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangria the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.